from PRX. Studio 360. This is American Icons. I'm Kurt Anderson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And the year is 1950. Tonight, the star of the radio program, my favorite husband, Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball, the radio actress, is talking with reporters on a radio show called Hollywood Byline. Bob Thomas. You do think that television is here to stay, though? Well, I'm afraid so. I do hope that they get it on film or something so that it doesn't take so much time so that we don't have to give up pictures to do television or... Vice versa. Vice versa. 1950, probably the last moment anybody could question the viability of television. TV was about to become the engine of popular culture, and at the very center of it, Lucille Ball. Her sitcom I Love Lucy defined the rules of TV comedy. It was the killer app of the new medium. Here is when American TV became American TV. And Lucy is still an inspiration in the writers' rooms of the best sitcoms of this era. These are the Ten Commandments of comedy. It's perfect. It was a huge hit that pushed the envelope in that straight-laced decade and even in our own. They're more than stereotypes. They're archetypes. There's something in us that responds psychologically, emotionally, because they're parts of our own psyche that are being projected there onto the screen. Today on American Icons, it's I Love Lucy. Now, maybe you haven't caught a rerun in a while, so let me bring you up to date. Lucy and Ricky are young marrieds living in New York City. Oh, hi, darling. Ricky's a successful Cuban band leader. And Lucy's a frustrated housewife who is desperate to become famous. Ricky, can I be in the show? Now, Lucy, don't be ridiculous. Every episode, Lucy cooks up some crazy scheme, like trying to play the saxophone. Or going on TV to sell a health tonic loaded with alcohol. Yes, with Vitamina Vegemin, you can spoon your way to hell. Or hiding a dozen eggs in her shirt. <laughs> Lucy's neighbor and co-conspirator is Ethel. Good morning, Lucy. Whose husband is the phlegmatic Fred. What are you trying to do, make a bum out of me? Lucy always messes things up. Lucy! Sometimes catastrophically. <laughs> Which makes Ricky blow his top. Which makes Lucy act like a baby. And in the end, Lucy returns to the fold. They kiss and make up. Domestic harmony restored. Here's to the greatest little wife in the whole world. I Love Lucy is literally the model of a hit sitcom. A, A TV machine designed to win the hearts and minds of a national audience week after week after week. A fair fraction of people, and the TV was sort of new at that time, they thought that it was a reality show. Greg Oppenheimer is the son of Jess Oppenheimer, the show's creator. Not that there was such a thing as a reality show back then, but they they thought that they just put a camera in and were filming what was going on at the Ricardo apartment every week. And the show deliberately encouraged that confusion. Before Seinfeld played Seinfeld and Roseanne played Roseanne, Lucille played Lucy. Like a lot of the shows on the newfangled television in the early 1950s, I Love Lucy came out of a radio show. It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. And I'll tell you something.
something else, George Cougat. There's going to be a famous Hollywood director in the audience on opening night, and I'll bet you if he sees me, he'll offer me a contract. Oh, Liz, stop it. You're talking like a child. Come on, we'll make a bet. How much? But before she'd agree to adapt the show for TV, she insisted on one really big change. Instead of the actor Richard Denning playing her husband, a banker, she wanted her real husband to get the job, the musician Desi Arnaz. Desi was always on the road performing, and Lucy wanted to settle down and start a family. But a TV show about an all-American girl married to a Cuban? CBS balked at that at first. Robert Thompson teaches TV history at Syracuse University. Let's face it, until what, 1967, there were still, I think, 16 states uh, in this country that still had anti-miscegenation laws on the books. So the fact that Lucy and Desi were married in real life and Lucy and Ricky were married on the show gave that show a certain bit of voltage. They decided that people just wouldn't buy Desi Arnaz as a banker. So they pretty much had him play himself, a Cuban band leader. And that gave the show its M.O. Lucy and Ricky Ricardo are two people pursuing two very different versions of the American dream. Here's a man who had been in show business all his life who wanted to marry a girl who was far removed from it so he'd have a nice normal home life. Jess Oppenheimer, the creator, head writer, and producer of the show, speaking in 1962. And he didn't realize that he was marrying a girl who had never been in show business, always viewed it from afar, and thought it was very glamorous, and she wanted to marry somebody so she could get into it. To bring that story to television, the team made a series of decisions that changed the medium forever. They got an Oscar-winning cinematographer to create a special lighting system. They also shot it with multiple cameras in front of a live audience, so it had some of the energy and the uh, kinetics of a regular live show. And Lucy understood that although she was the star, TV was going to be a writer's medium. She stuck to the script. Everybody did. There was no ad-libbing. Doris Singleton played Lucy's friend Carolyn Appleby on the show. Hello, Carolyn. Oh, hello, Lucy. She was very focused. I think that's probably the best word for it. Uh, We did not fool around at all. And maybe most important of all, they decided that instead of the grainy kinescope recordings that were standard at the time, they would record their show on high-quality film. This becomes really, really key because while nobody was really thinking too much about the value of a television program after its first airing in 1951... They were sure starting to think about that five years later. And, of course, by being on film, you had this beautiful set of episodes that could be watched over and over and over and over again. The film, the cameras, the live audience. That really became the norm of how the three-camera sitcom would be shot well into the 21st century. This is the original stage door where we filmed I Love Lucy. Come on inside. I'm Dan Kahn. I was the editor, the original editor of I Love Lucy. And right now we are at the Hollywood Center Studios. Dan Kahn worked at CBS until he was 87 years old. He gave us a tour of the Hollywood Center Studios in Los Angeles, which are still used today. You can see some pictures at Studio360.org. Right here was the living room set right in the middle of where the audience sat. Look down, there was the living room. Then they had that little peekaboo door and went into the kitchen. Here was the kitchen. 
This stage encompasses 10,000 square feet. We had the orchestra, Desi's band, and the CBS orchestra. And for the audience, the bleachers ran from one end of the stage to the other. And we had these microphones all throughout the ceiling to pick up the laughs. This was the sound of television inventing itself. Oh, you great, big, handsome husband, you. Mm. Lucy? Yes, dear? What have you done? <laughs> I Love Lucy debuted on October 15, 1951, at the very moment that the sale of TV sets was taking off. And suddenly, there was this new category of celebrity, TV star. Life magazine did photo shoots at Lucy and Desi's home in L.A. And if you liked what you were seeing on TV, well, you could own a piece of it. There were I Love Lucy dolls, Ricky Ricardo pajamas, Lucy lingerie, even I Love Lucy toilet seats. I Love Lucy demonstrated how much you could squeeze out of a TV show. In other words, this wasn't just a television show. It became something of a lifestyle. And then reality intervened. Lucy finds out she's pregnant. We weren't even allowed to use the word pregnant. We didn't even say pregnant. In fact, if you look close, it's like they were always in twin beds. An American married to a Cuban was one thing. But in 1952, you could not be pregnant on TV. No way. A year into this hit, Desi told Jess Oppenheimer, the producer, that they were just going to have to end the show. My dad came up with the idea of uh, having a, a rabbi, a priest, and a minister look at all the pregnancy scripts and uh, bless them, uh, you know, pass on them being not offensive to anybody. Greg Oppenheimer, the creator, Jess Oppenheimer's son. And that helped calm the network uh, quite a bit. And as it turns out, they never changed a word. Are you hungry? Oh, starved. After all, I'm eating for me and little Romeo or Juliet. <laughs> On the show, they never said that Lucy was pregnant. She was expecting. Of course. Expectant mothers are the most unpredictable creatures in the world. <laughs> you know, it's amazing the way he fusses over me and takes care of me since we've been expecting the baby. They even resorted to French, the title episode in which Lucy tells Ricky the news, Lucy is enceinte. All through the episode, Lucy tries to tell Ricky that she's going to have a baby, but there's always some interruption. I'm going down to the club and tell him. Oh, Lucy, that won't be the way you've always planned it. Well, I can't help it. Ricky's got to know, and if I don't tell him soon, I might as well wait and let the baby tell him. <laughs> So Lucy goes down to the club where he's playing and writes a note and gives the note to the maitre d' to give to Ricky. But she hasn't signed her name, so he reads it to the audience. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Listen to this. I heard you sing a number called We're Having a Baby, My Baby and Me. If you will sing it for us now, it will be my way of breaking the news to him. I got a wonderful idea. Why don't we bring the couple up here and I'll sing it right to them, eh? Come on, let's bring them up on the floor. So Ricky goes from couple to couple asking, did you write the note? Did you? Rock a bye, baby, under three tops. No. When the wind blows. He passes Lucy, and then he comes back to Lucy, and she nods, yes, you know. Oh, that makes me sort of cry, <laughs> just telling about it. 
And he finally gets to Lucy and does one of the longest double takes. Honey, no. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's me! <laughs> and then they hug and they kiss. This was reality TV. As the camera moves in, you can see a real couple apparently sharing real joy, real tears rolling down their cheeks. We're having a baby, my baby and me. You'll read it in Winchell that we're adding a limb to our family tree. The writers actually timed the TV birth of little Ricky to air on the same night that Lucy had her real baby by C-section. We're having a baby, my baby and me. You couldn't have written this scenario better for the amount of publicity, goodwill, excitement. TV historian Robert Thompson. The very first issue of TV Guide, which would become for many years kind of the Bible of television, the very first issue has a picture of the baby, Desi Jr., on the front cover, which kind of announces this new infant medium. It's now out, it's growing up, and the nation ate that up like crazy. 44 million people tuned into the episode Lucy Goes to the Hospital. The next day was President Eisenhower's first inauguration. Only 29 million people watched that. America liked Ike, but it loved Lucy. Coming up, Lucy redefines the 1950s housewife. Now she's putting them in her brassiere. It looks like her breasts are heavy with the chocolate. She is stuffing them into her mouth. And by the way, she's wearing pearls. And she's wearing <laughs> pearls. Well, she, she looks good in pearls. That's ahead in Studio 360's American Icons, I Love Lucy, from PRI and WNYC. Keep your radio dial right here. We'll be back after these messages. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is American Icons. Today's show is all about the most famous woman on TV ever, Lucille Ball. Well, Ricky, what about me? Or, I should say, Lucy Ricardo. Thank you. Her show, I Love Lucy, helped invent television, and it redefined what women on TV could be. Think of the TV moms of the 1950s. Now, should we all have some supper? Like June Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver. Well, Beaver, isn't your shirt buttoned up nice and neatly? And Margaret Anderson on Father Knows Best. Would you like some hot chocolate, buddy? I'd love some, Mother. Me too, Margaret. All right. These were proper ladies whose only ambition was to teach their children good old family values. Moderation, patience, manners. And then there was Lucy clinging to the ledge of her apartment building, dressed up as Superman. Come on in here, I want an explanation! Can you teach me to fly? (laughs) Lucy is this wonderful bad girl, but who lives the life of a good woman, because she craves things, she wants attention, she wants her own way. Gina Barreca is a professor at the University of Connecticut. Lucy is a hot tomato, 
a beautiful woman who is trapped in domesticity, both because she wants to be and because the circumstances of her existence as a 50s housewife wouldn't permit her to be otherwise. Do you remember the first time you saw I Love Lucy? No, I think it was probably in utero. I think I uh, I Love Lucy was filtered through the amniotic fluid. <laughs> I mean, it was ubiquitous. I mean, Lucy was woven into the fabric of our everyday existence. We would talk about Lucy. We would play Lucy. We could quote whole scenes. These were rehearsals for life as far as we were concerned. It wasn't until much later that I started to realize the sort of Lucy effect on the lives of women. One of the things Baraka teaches is feminist theory. Lucy, in her own incredibly wacky way, was always going to be the star. And she was going to be the star in the same way that, you know, the heroine in an Austen novel, in that she's not like all the other girls. The other girls may be pretty and well-bred and, you know, minding their manners. But the heroine is the heroine because she breaks out of the chorus. And Lucille Ball really did break out of the chorus. She started out as a Goldwyn girl, a leggy dame, just one of a dozen. On the studio lot, she watched comedy geniuses like Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers up close. Here she is talking to Merv Griffin on his talk show in 1973. No, no, no one ever said, make her a star. Someone said, she doesn't care if her face gets all dirty and she makes faces and screams and yells a lot. And the other girls are very busy being beautiful. When there was something to scream about or wear a mud pack or, or do something physical, I was available and they weren't. And that's how I got started. Think about the classic bit where Lucy's starring in that commercial for a health syrup called Vita Vita. Vitamita Vegemin. Thank you. Yes, Vitamita Vegemin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. It also contains a ton of alcohol. It's so tasty, too. It tastes just like candy. <laughs> so why don't you join the thousands of people? She's lost any kind of sense of composure. She's leaning over. Her eyes are crossing a little bit. She's sort of a little belligerent. And she's tapping the bottle like, you know, somebody's just come out of a speakeasy, like she's going to, you know, put it in her garter. So everybody get a bottle of this stuff. stuff. <laughs> she's winking. You know, she's barely holding her head up. We've lost the dignity. It's Miguel Cuddy. Mm-hmm. Are you all right? Oh, I feel fine, but you know, it's hot in here. It really is a brilliant piece of TV. And the sitcom writer Jeff Greenstein says we've never quite gotten over it. The beauty of the show is it was shot live, and you really get the sense of an audience that is totally intoxicated by what this woman is doing and an actress who is getting off on the reaction that she's getting. She's astounding. And then there's the time Lucy and Ethel bet their husbands that they can make it in the working world and end up frantically wrapping chocolates as they zoom past on a conveyor belt. Listen, Ethel, I I think this... (laughs) I think we're fighting a losing game. And Lucy starts putting them in her mouth. They're like chipmunks storing the food for winter. Look, look, they can't eat anymore. 
So what Charlie Chaplin had done in modern times exactly. 15 years earlier. And it's also the idea, of, even in the 50s, the idea of watching women eat is something you never see, right? Oh, let when alone do you see stuff their mouths stuffing with Stuffing their mouths with chocolate. This is still, now she's putting them in her brassiere. It looks like her breasts are heavy with the chocolate. And by the way, she's wearing pearls. And she's wearing <laughs> pearls. Well, she, she looks good in pearls. Fine, you're doing splendidly. Speed it up a little! But this episode ends, like every episode of I Love Lucy, in total abysmal failure. Lucy is humiliated. She's bullied, sometimes even spanked by her husband. The joke is Lucy smacking her head against that very low glass ceiling again and again and again. I've done it again. Chalk up another boo-boo. <laughs> no, honey. We might as well face it, Ricky. I'm a big, fat flop. No, honey, you stop talking that way. You're getting an inferiority complex. No, I'm not. I don't need a complex. I really am inferior. <laughs> In this day and age, is that something we ought to be laughing at? So, Net, I love Lucy. Good for women, bad for women. Which? <laughs> Let's pretend we're on Fox News and MSNBC, okay? Good for women, bad for women. Good for women. Yeah. Anytime, absolutely. Anytime a woman does something besides making a cooing noise and washing a dish, she's making a feminist gesture because she's doing something. I really do like the fact that even though she gets sort of re-domesticated, you know she's going to come back. But then she was always tamped back into her place. And, you know, the nature of that humiliation in each episode is, I think, part of what I found really unnerving about it as a child. Emily Nussbaum grew up to write about television. She's a critic for The New Yorker. She still doesn't love Lucy. She shrieks and wheedles and whines, and she's heightened in this way, and then she gets spanked and humiliated. She refuses to be a Stepford wife and instead is like a, a child. Yeah. Right, but I didn't laugh when that happened. Like, yeah. it wasn't funny to me. Lucy was always about desire and the idea that she wasn't trying to figure out what other people wanted. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. That's a seditious act. That's seditious for anybody in the 50s, but especially for a woman. This desire for attention is totally detached from any desire to practice singing or dancing or anything like that. It's not I respect Lucy. Who would watch that? That's the joke of the show, is that Lucille Ball is a talented comedian, but Lucy Ricardo is a completely untalented hack who is just a, a ball of need. And that part does seem very modern because people always, you know, there's this big cultural thing right now where young girls are just constantly attacked for wanting to be famous for being famous, as if this was created by the Internet. But actually, when you watch the show, one of the things you see is that in the case of Lucy Ricardo, she wants to be famous and Hollywood glamorous for ways that are really very much part of that larger continuum with Paris Hilton. Like, she wants to be famous for being Lucy, you know. And she was famous for 15 minutes over and over and over again. Exactly. I remember as a child thinking it was, like, lame and old and square. And black and white. And black and white. Yeah, I remember thinking I Love Lucy was, like, one of those many black and white things that people keep telling you is so great. Uh -huh. But then you watch it and you're sort of bored and annoyed by it. Mindy Kaling is the creator and star of The Mindy Project, before that, she wrote for The Office, where she played Kelly Kapoor. I never really understood why this, like, kind of young, good-looking interracial couple would, like, hang out with these, like, old people. Hirsch. I always kind of liked Fred and Ethel. 
it wasn't until my boss at the office like refused to talk to me, Greg <laughs> Daniels, until I had seen some Lucy episodes. So I YouTubed some. And it is amazing. It turns out Lucy's unshakable quest for fame is kind of a blueprint for all kinds of sitcom characters, like Leslie Nope on Parks and Recreation and Michael Scott, the boss on The Office. Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Someone who is not a performer, but who wants to be desperately and who is terrible at it. Hey, what's the deal, Michael? Why are you spying on our computers? Oh, no. Everybody, Oscar's gone crazy. What other ghost stories do you have for us? That I'm a robot? <laughs> I will destroy everything in my past. Actually, we just... Uh, boop, beep, beep. Okay. And in some ways are, like, delusional. <laughs> yeah. You know, Lucy is very delusional and very resilient, you know? Both of those characters could get very depressed if they actually sat and thought about their situations, but they don't. They're immune to that, and I just think that's just so watchable. Sitcom writers like Jeff Greenstein are channeling Lucy. It's like the Rosetta Stone of comedy. This stuff is in the DNA and in the brain of every comedy writer. Greenstein has written for Friends and Will and & Grace and Desperate Housewives. All you had to do was say the word Lucy in the writer's room, and people instantly understood the kind of comedic flavor it was going to be. We're going to reach a certain level of zaniness by starting from a fairly credible setup, but we're going to be orbiting Pluto by the end of it. I'm so sorry that I'm late, but... <gasps> Hello, kitties! <laughs> what, what's with that? It's a hydro bra. Water filled for extra perkiness. <laughs> We did an episode of Will and Grace called Das Boob, uh, which was the exploits of Grace on the day she decides to try a water bra. And, uh, and we knew when we were building this that this was a Lucy-style episode. Will, what are you doing? I think you've sprung a leak. What are you talking about? Get out of here before we see John! <laughs> that is textbook Lucy. She just wants to be noticed, but she always ends up making a fool of herself. I'm Liz Lemon, and I lost my virginity at 25. If there's somebody working the Lucille Ball vein of comedy right now on television, I'd say it's Tina Fey on 30 Rock. In which a brilliant writer-producer plays a hack writer-producer. My work self is suffocating my life me. She's playing a kind of slightly bubble-headed heroine. I hate my feet. Not as smart as she thinks she is. I eat emotionally. A little bit of a wannabe, trying to keep a desperately unhinged life under control. And once I had a sex dream about Nate Burkus, but halfway through he turned into Dr. Oz. Has that ever happened to you? The thing is, we're laughing with Liz Lemon and Lucy Ricardo at the same time that we're laughing at them. It's both. It has to be both. The humor in Lucy has lasted because as ridiculous as she can be, we've been there. The desire to sort of make something of yourself, to be visible, to be fabulous, to be more than, uh, it's one of the things that makes her a relatable character even 55 years later. She probably helped a lot of, you know, screwballs embrace their inner screwball and make it work for them. She wasn't a square she was someone that the freaks could relate to as well. Hey, 
Ladies and gentlemen, hey, let me just look out and see who all's here tonight. Justin Bond is a songwriter who used to perform in the duo Kiki and Herb. Bond played the outrageous alcoholic Kiki. I tell myself too many times, why don't you just keep that big clock trap shut? That's why it hurts so bad to hear the words that keep on falling from your mouth. Kiki was definitely, you know, she owes a big debt to Lucy. But I think any comedian does. I grew up in um, Western Maryland in a small town called Hagerstown there. And uh, my best friend and I were obsessed with Lucy when we were maybe in seventh or eighth grade. We just would sit in her room on summer days and read stories of Lucy and biographies of Lucille Ball. And I think we could relate to Lucy's double life because we were just, you know, miserable We were miserable teenagers in this wasteland, suburban neighborhood. And yet my responsibility was to look happy. My responsibility was to be a positive reflection on my family. The Martian episode encapsulates the thing that I liked the most about Lucy being a um, sort of transgendered queer kid. And that's the one where Lucy and Ethel are hired to dress up as Martians. <laughs> well, when Lucy and Ethel come in with their dealy bobber antennas, <laughs> and their outfits are sort of like wrestling outfits. What are they? They, 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 they look like women from Mars. They have their own language, which is amazing. They see the bourgeois sightseers and dance around them and look at them and inspect their clothing and the hats and sort of just just smacking this middle-aged man. They become the freaks. They become the aliens. And Lucy and Ethel are, for that moment, in charge. I just was tickled. I thought it was a great example of friendship and of how you can pull one over on simple-minded people. It portrayed queerness, as far as I'm concerned. It portrayed outsiderness, otherness. And so it gave people, I think, a blueprint on how to, if they were paying attention and they cared, how to deal with otherness in a respectful, loving, rational way. Coming up, the I in I Love Lucy. Ricky Ricardo comes to America. Ricky would lick off a couple of Spanish words here and there all the time and just go, Oye, Lucy, ¿por qué tú te crees que de la vida? Yo no sé. And I would remember just looking at him like, wow, that's one of my people right there. That's ahead in Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC. This is Kurt Anderson, and you're listening to Studio 360's American Icons. Now, I've watched a lot of TV in my lifetime, and the show I've probably logged more hours watching than almost any other, I Love Lucy. 
I spent countless afternoons in front of my parents' black-and-white TV set in Omaha. And when I catch the show nowadays, Lucy actually reminds me a little bit of my mom. TV characters can be familiar like that. Week after week, we start to think we're getting to know them. Watching Lucy and Ricky live their daily lives and deal with their ups and downs and various kinds of craziness helps show us how to deal with our own. And that remains part of television's successful formula to this day. These are people that when we visit them every week, they're there for each other or they're antagonizing each other or making each other miserable, all things that are, you know, part of a family experience. Chuck Lorre is a true sitcom kingpin. He created shows like Dharma and Greg, Two and a Half Men, and The Big Bang Theory. Probably nothing puts a character to the test more than a relationship. You know, an ongoing relationship is the crucible for a character. Oh, Lucy, darling. That's the reason I marry you, because you're so different from anyone I've known in Cuba. Who'd you know in Cuba? <laughs> the marriage in I Love Lucy brought Cuba into American living rooms. On 1950s TV, pretty much everybody was a wasp. But I Love Lucy put an ethnic character front and center. Desi Arnaz was the first Latino in a lead role. Well, honey, it's a very nice thought, but as usual, you will have no logical explanation for doing it the way you're doing it. <laughs> what did you say? A lot of the show's narratives are about a certain unease with Ricky's foreignness, but then turns it into farce. What's the matter with the way I talk? <laughs> Gustavo Perez Firmat teaches at Columbia University. He's the author of Life on the Hyphen, the Cuban-American Way. There's a, a point at which Lucy wants their son to speak perfect English, doesn't want him to speak with a Cuban accent, and so hires this guy called Mr. Livermore. Repeat after me, please. And the first lesson is about the pronunciation of the vowels. A, E, I, O, U. A-E-O-U. <laughs> I love that guy. Mr. Ricardo, wherever did you acquire that odd pronunciation? I went to school in Cuba. What's your excuse? And what I like about the way the, this episode turns out is that the teacher ends up speaking English with a Cuban accent instead of Ricky speaking English without a Cuban accent. And I like very much that about the show, that it gives Cuba its due. It, you know, it doesn't try to make Ricky less Cuban than he is. We really didn't understand what Lucy, Ethel, and Fred were saying, but Ricky would lick off a couple of Spanish words here and there all the time and just go, Oye, Lucy, ¿por qué tú te crees que te la vida? No tiene nada metido en la cabeza. Está la cabeza hueca. And basically, that was my dad. <laughs> that was my dad when he'd yell at me the same way. And I remember just looking at him like, wow, that's one of my people right there. Upiano Sergio Reyes is a rapper and producer. Professionally known as Mellow Man Ace. Formerly of the group Cypress Hill. My AKA is the godfather of Latinos and hip hop. I came all the way from Cuba just to Babaluya on a raft on a river from the river on to ya. He grew up watching the show in South Central LA. On the Lucy show, the music that I heard my folks knew it, you know, from Cuba, uh, the danson rhythms and the ballads and the folk 
type music. So whenever Desi would go into something like I my my I my my todo lo negro tomamo cafe. I my my I my That right there is just a Cuban thing. Every household in Cuba sings that when it's time to drink some coffee and that's every day. The novelist Oscar Ijuelos. On the other hand, he was saying, uh, you know, my name is Cuban Pete. I'm the king of the rumba beat, you know. When I play the maracas, I go jig 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 Yes, sir, I'm Cuban Pete. I'm the craze of my native street. It was charming, but I wouldn't say it had anything to do with what was actually being performed in Havana. It was America in the 1950s, and authenticity wasn't such a buzzword. For white Anglo audiences, Ricky was exotic, but not threatening, kind of cartoony. He's a handsome Latin with an accent. He's the end. But Ijuelos saw another side to Ricky. I always interpreted his personality not from his dialogue or his double takes, but from this quietude that he would have when his expression fell silent. He saw in that expression the sadness of exile. Ejuelos made Desi Arnaz a character in his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Mambo King Sing Songs of Love. Desi appears in a scene in the book sharing a late night with the Mambo Kings, eating, drinking, and remembering home. Arnez began playing Cielito Lindo, and by then everyone in the kitchen was a ring of arms and swaying happy bodies. Strummed like a waltz, it was the kind of song that a loving mother would sing at bedtime for her children. Arnez shut his eyes in pleasant contemplation of his own loving mother in Cuba, filling the empty hours of the afternoon with the songs that she'd play in the parlor of their grand house in Santiago. Just those little thoughts made the men feel like crying. But Desi Arnez also had an American dream. And as president of Desilu Productions, he launched a television empire that made The Untouchables, Andy Griffith, and later Star Trek. In 1954, at the beginning of his heyday, Desi appeared on Ed Sullivan's show, Toast of the Town. You know, we came to this country and we didn't have a cent in our pockets. From cleaning canary cages to this night here in New York, it's a long ways. And I don't think there's any other country in the world that could give you that opportunity. I want to say thank you. Thank you, America. Thank you. Mellow Man Ace. He really laid down a foundation of how to go get it industry-wise. How to come to America and thrive. How to come to America and turn them on to you. Marianne once told me that Ricky Ricardo was the only Cuban she knew before knowing me, and that I reminded her of Ricky Ricardo with a Ph.D. Gustavo Perez Firmat, the Cuban scholar, came to the United States in 1960. In his 40s, he met Marianne Adamson from Paramus, New Jersey. And we're trying to figure out how a Cuban man and American women live together. And we thought, well, this is kind of a test case. And so we began watching the show. We used to record it every weekday, and then we used to replay it at night. And it became our version of foreplay. (laughs) In fact, I think it's a very sexy show. 
You know, and yeah. the, the, the title is I Love Lucy. And what do you see when you see the words on the screen, the title on the screen? You see rumpled satin sheets, and then you see a heart. So, you know, it's clear that it's in bed mm. where Ricky really loved Lucy. It's the great Cuban American love story. On a very practical level, watching I Love Lucy, there are times where she absolutely caters to him as a Cuban. She'll make him arroz con pollo because that's his favorite food. And I learned to make arroz con pollo and, and many other Cuban dishes. Everybody laughs at Ricky Ricardo's tirades. But Gustavo just flies off the handle and screams and yells and, and then stops. And then everything's fine again. And I've learned not to, you know, palpitate. <laughs> I know, you used to be scared to death of I me. I used to be afraid of you, but now I'm not so afraid of you anymore. Marianne has learned to say yes, darling. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> I learned to dance. It's one of the first things he ever taught me is how to dance the rumba. Yeah, and Marianne has Cuban hips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I like, and like, to like people used to say about Desi, she can rumba standing up and she can rumba lying down. <laughs> I had a good teacher after all. <laughs> standing up or lying down? Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> You gorgeous, exciting woman, you. Oh, you great big Latin lover, you. I look on them as maybe part of our family somehow. Relatives, friends, aunt, uncle. I don't, I don't know. They're sort of, to me, like what the Mertzes were to Lucy and Ricky. You know, <laughs> they're just sort of ever-present neighbors who might walk in at any time. Very real. And what if Lucy and Ricky were real? As TV's most famous, most enduring married couple, just what kind of example are they setting for the rest of us married folk? I'm Sherry Mattenstein, and I'm a couples therapist in New York City. So I've kind of seen the down and dirty and what really goes on between folks. How would you describe Lucy and Ricky's relationship? Pretty dysfunctional. Really? Their marriage was more of a competition, and they didn't really trust one another too much. They're always accusing the other one of infidelity. They're always lying. They're always hiding things. Lucy, who is he? I don't know what you're talking about. My goodness, if you're going to act like this, I'll be glad to have you away for three weeks. I, now, Lucy, it was all about how to outwit, how to win over the other person. It wasn't about trusting and partnership and let's support each other. You are afraid that if I got half a chance at a career that I would be the star of the family. Huh. Uh, in fact, I always felt sorry for little Ricky, pretty neglected little kid. They both have really strong personalities, these characters. Absolutely. Um, as a therapist in New York City, you probably deal with lots of couples where both people have really strong personalities. Absolutely. In some cases, they're drawn to each other for precisely those reasons, but then they just keep knocking heads because they don't understand the dynamics of what's really going on. So they just keep hitting the same wall. And, and that's a central thing that most couples want. They want to be gotten, but they don't know how to get their partner. So, so. everybody has some splaining to do. Everybody. <laughs> now, without Ricky and Lucy bickering and going at each other, there wouldn't have been much of a show. But apparently, the off-screen arguments were much worse. 
Running Desi Lou was stressful, and it probably rankled Desi, always playing second fiddle to his more famous wife. Behind the scenes, Arnez is a Latin Lothario, who loves Lucy most of the time, but by no means all of the time. So you could watch Lucy and Desi being married on TV, and then you could read a more salacious version of the story in scandal rags like Confidential. Desi is most certainly a duck-out daddy. Close friends say Lucy is a lass with a temper to match her flaming hair and not one to shrug off a misbehaving mister. By 1961, they were having trouble working together. Dan Kahn was the editor of I Love Lucy. It was incredible how their relationship photographed that they were still madly in love and actually they were hardly talking to each other. That's when the separation was not far off. And I'm very careful about talking about the negative side because the fans have the illusion that Lucy and Desi went on into eternity in love with each other. And indeed they were. They just... Uh, had a problem living together after a while, but the fans fantasized that what they saw on the television screen was reality. The day after they wrapped their 194th episode, their final show together, Lucille Ball filed for divorce. As a five-year-old, I remember hearing this news on the radio in my kitchen at home. I was completely freaked out. I, I didn't know anyone who'd been divorced. And here were these people who, since I was a toddler, I'd spent watching Be Married. If Lucy and Ricky couldn't make it, what did that mean about everybody's real parents? Personally, I like flawed characters because, um, well, when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, there is one right there looking back at me. TV producer Chuck Lorre. So I can, you know, when I see a character who's trying to deal with, walk through the world with all the flaws that come with the human condition, that's interesting. It also strikes me that it's, with television, it's the first time people are sitting on a couch as if looking in a mirror, watching the people in the play sitting on a couch. A couch and talking, yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's intimate. It's a very intimate experience. And when you honor that... It can work, you know. You're not making a movie. You're, there's no helicopters going to come over the horizon, and there's no sweeping score that's going to capture the moment. It's just two human beings talking to each other. I love Lucy, and she loves me. We're as happy as two can be. Sometimes we quarrel, but then <laughs> how we love making up again. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz divorced. But Ricky? Ricky still loves Lucy, and Lucy still wants to be famous, and Ricky still wants Lucy to be his regular American wife. And we'll keep watching them try to make that work on TV or DVD or YouTube or Hulu or whatever we invent next. Because our hero never gives up. Writer Jeff Greenstein. I Love Lucy is one of the purest expressions of the joy of being alive. The joy with which Lucy approaches her life is really infectious. And Lucy loves her life. She's constantly trying to push at the boundaries of it, but she approaches everything with joy.
And that is it for this episode of American Icons. Don't worry, you can hear it all again online at studio360.org slash American Icons. And while you're there, you can also listen to a lot more interviews and see photos and videos of some of the stuff we talked about on the show today. It's so tasty, too! This episode of American Icons was produced by Jenny Lawton with production assistance from Chloe Plant and the late Klaus Andreasen. David Krasnow was our editor. Special thanks to Greg Oppenheimer, Andy Lancet, Wanda Clark, Hollywood Center Studios, Digital Deli 2, Sarah Lilly, Ivan Zimmerman, Mark Mayer, and Laura Lee Bartlett. The use of clips from I Love Lucy is courtesy of CBS Broadcasting, Inc., and original music is by Alex Galifant. Since we first aired this episode in 2010, Dora Singleton and Dan Kahn and Oscar Uelos have died. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360 the Muslim comedian who hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We're at a very interesting moment in our country, and who I am, given my background, is also, to me, a big middle finger to the administration. Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj, next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.